All right, let's come on back to our seats, everybody. Welcome to this last Sunday in October. Glad that you're here today. And uh, if you grab a Bible or a device on which you have a Bible, I know that there are, uh, we're later than normal, so the football games are in full swing in the first quarter, and no, I have not checked the scores. Also, my phone's dead, so I can't. But we have, believe it or not, more important things to do this morning. So if you'll turn to Acts chapter 20, that would be good. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you in the seat backs, a black hardcover Bible. If you don't have one at home that you can read, please take that as our gift to you. Um, You're also going to want to follow along. Um, You will be far less bored, and you'll see why that's even funnier today in this sermon than normally. So... Acts chapter 20, we're making our way through the book of Acts. We took a break this summer to go through the Psalms again, summer Psalms. And we are in Acts 20. There's 28 chapters in Acts. So we'll see how quickly we get to the end here with Christmas looming. You read along with me. I'm going to read the first 16 verses of Acts 20, which I would assume by looking at the clock, Pastor Ron is either teaching right now in the mountains or has already finished. And we're going to get through it together as well. Acts chapter 20, let's start in verse 1, and I'll read all the way down through verse 16. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to Troas, where we stayed for seven days." On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead of the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Interesting. Let's pray, and we'll see what the Lord has for us today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ability to sing this morning. Um, Thank you, Lord, that we could come and eat together. Thank you, Lord, for true Christian fellowship. Uh, we know that uh, that is so important to this book of Acts and so important to our lives and the life of our church. We pray for our brothers and sisters up in the mountains as they pack up and get ready to come back down. Pray that you'd be with them. Um, we pray, Lord, that as we enter a very busy season, um, both as in school and work and families and at our church, Lord, that you would give us the energy and the strength, um, the motivation, the attitude for what we need to do for the craft fair and for um, Project Touch and for Living Nativity and for Thanksgiving and Christmas and all these things, Lord. We ask that they would be a joy and that we would um, figure out how to schedule our family schedule, our church schedule in such a way that we would be in our communities and blessing our neighbors and also working hard at the things that you have for us here on campus. Lord, we do pray for the teachers at Violet Elementary around the corner. We pray that you would be with them. We pray that um, by signing cards for them and beginning to look into how to minister to them, that we might um, show uh, the compassion of Jesus to the teachers at Violet 
And Lord, we pray that you would be with the students there. And we pray that you might send a revival uh, there amongst those preschoolers through sixth graders and the teachers and workers there. Uh, God, we also pray for revival here. We pray that you would revive our hearts. We pray that many would come to know you. And we pray for more baptisms, for more people to join our church and membership. And Lord, we thank you for the missionaries that we support here at this church. We pray that you would give them strength here on the Sunday uh, where they have, many of them have already worshiped um, and are in their after church activities. We pray, Lord, that you would be with them. Um, Be with my voice and help us to learn what you have for us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so these 16 verses, um, some would call a travel log. Uh, there's, a, there's a great detail here. There's lots of uh, city names, lots of place names, and doubtless um, this is, these verses are not on many of your inspirational coffee mugs. Um, what is going on here? What do we do with this? Why does Luke focus so much on these places? Um, even the, uh, the great reformer John Calvin said this about this passage. And though whatsoever is written... In this narration, be worthy of most diligent meditation and marking. Yet doth it need no long exposition. So we will see how the Lord brings Calvin's words, Luke's words, and my words together today on a day where we started church later. So um, it should be interesting. (laughs) Um, This passage, if you have a study Bible or a Bible with cross-references, you'll be greatly helped in your own personal study Um, going back over this passage to look at some of the um, remarks in Romans and in 1st and 2nd Corinthians because in this um, narration in this in this time uh, Paul writes Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians during these travels and so what we can do is we look at what Luke tells us here and we begin to piece together what Paul says in his letters and give greater clarity to what's going on Um, the Holy Spirit inspires the authors of the scriptures to write the words that God wanted us 2,000 years later to have and to read. And so the authors leave some things out and include other things for a purpose. Now, sometimes it is up to us to try to figure out that purpose. Other times it's made very clear. This may be one of those passages where we have to do a little bit more work in figuring those things out. Um, So what we have before us is 16 verses that probably take place in at least a year and a half. So in those 16 verses that I just read in two minutes, we have at least a year and a half, some scholars would say up to three years of Paul's activities. So again, when we read the word of God, especially when we have uh, trips and geographical locations, we need to slow down, we need to open our maps We need to take a look at this because God has included this for our edification. Um, Last week, Pastor AJ talked about uh, the riot in Ephesus and the commotion there and all of what went on. Paul is barely even in that passage because his followers are trying to hold him back and keep him out of a dangerous position, which, by the way, is helpful for us to think about. Um, The next two Sundays are celebrated around, well, they're recognized around the world as International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And sometimes in um, our safe, air-conditioned, cushioned uh, churches, we can sometimes swing to one end of the spectrum and think that, um, man, it would be great to have persecution because then we'd really be followers of Jesus like Paul. Well, you'll, you'll notice that Paul, in last week's passage and in today's, avoids Um, affliction and avoids oppression and gets away from danger and so we need to be very careful that we don't have some um, odd glorified version of persecution persecution is awful and it's horrible and we and they pray for it to go away on the other hand um, we should expect it as well so there's this tension in us even as we read acts we need to think about this so we've talked about how paul is always getting in trouble he's getting stoned he gets in shipwrecks and all of these things but it is not, it is not some um, masochistic desire for more suffering. It's a desire to do whatever it takes to get the gospel to the nations. And sometimes that means suffering, and sometimes that means escape. And I want you to notice that here um, in this passage. I had a hard time figuring out how to outline this, so I didn't even give you points today. I just gave you scenes. <laughs> um, I gave you some scenes here because we have three different scenes. But overall, this, these 16 verses... I summarize this way. Paul made his roundabout way toward Jerusalem, encouraging and equipping the churches, taking every opportunity the Lord gave him. 
And we see that in these passages right at the outset. So look at verse 1 of chapter 20. After the uproar ceased. And at the, the uproar clearly has just taken place. And so to understand what's going on, you either need to have been here last week or go back and read Acts 19. Um, but Paul's followers kept him away from the riot and from the protest and from all that was going on as the economy in Ephesus is struggling because so many are following Jesus and not buying idols, not worshiping other gods anymore. And after that uproar ceased, after it calmed down, Paul then called for the disciples. Notice that phraseology, the disciples. He's calling for the Christians, the church. This is not the super leaders. This is everybody. He calls for the whole church. Disciple means learner, the the followers. So Paul sent for them and gathers them around. Now, some would look at verse 1 and say, after the uproar ceased, Paul's getting out of Dodge quick. And that's probably part of this. But more than that, Paul had already had plans to leave. If you go back and look through chapter 19, and if you also look in 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Romans, Paul was making plans to get to Jerusalem um, for two reasons. One, he hadn't been to Jerusalem in years now. He's been on the field ministering. And two, we don't find this in Luke, except for one brief mention later on in chapter 24, uh, in Acts from Luke, um, except for in Acts 24. But we do hear about it in his letters to the Romans and his letters to the church at Corinth that Paul is busy making a collection. He's asking all of the churches in the region to start raising support to go, so he can go bring it to the church at Jerusalem, which is really struggling and suffering. There's a lot more of this in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. A uh, brief mention of it in 1 Corinthians 16 and also uh, towards the, well, the beginning and the end of the letter to the Romans. So Paul has already had plans to leave, and it's probably motivation to go after this big riot to get out of there, and possibly Paul leaves so the pressure goes down, and the Christians that have to stay behind when Paul leaves aren't under as much stress because so much of it is blamed on Paul. So as this happens, what does Paul do? Well, he doesn't just cut bait and run. He gathers the church, and he encourages them. In fact, we'll see this theme here in the end of the book of Acts as Paul makes his way all over the Mediterranean. He's going to do this more and more. It says, And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had come through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So we see in two verses, two mentions of the word encourage, encouragement. What Paul is is doing here is he is equipping the churches to function after he's gone. Um, what, what we need to do in this church and any church is we need to set up um, processes and structures so that as we follow God's word, we are set up to function no matter um, who the pastor is or what's going on. Too many, pa- too many churches die when a pastor retires or leaves because too much is dependent on the pastor and the people, in- including the leaders, have not thought through enough how do we function as a church and what is our role in putting this together. Paul wants the churches to survive after he's gone. That's really important to see here. And so he encourages them. He doesn't leave with a scolding. Bad way to leave, right? He doesn't, and, and, and he's scolded these churches in his letters quite recently during this trip. But he leaves them with encouragement. Or maybe your Bible says exhortation. He's giving them a charge. He's putting courage in them. He's encouraging them. This is important for us to note. So scene one in your notes, Paul encourages the churches gathers his team for departure to Jerusalem despite opposition. Paul encourages the churches, gathers his team for departure to Jerusalem despite opposition. So the plan is in place um, and the, the move has been made to begin to go back to these churches that he's planted. So in, verse, in verses 1 and 2 and 3, we have some movement. Okay, In verse 4, we have a list that we'll get to in a minute. And then in verses 5 and 6, we have more movement. So I want to take you through a little bit of of what's going on here um, in the movement. In chapter 19, where was Paul? He was in what city? He was in Ephesus, okay? So Ephesus is over here on the west coast of what now is Turkey, um, the province of Asia at the time, which is why we see in the list that he's got Asians with him. They're from this province, okay? Um, We see that he's taking off from Macedonia. Macedonia is over here to the north of Greece, 
all right? If you look at a map, by the way, if you open Google Maps later, I almost said right now, later, um, you'll see some of these nations, and this is near the Balkans, and so there's lots of weird borders here nowadays. But Paul made his way up and over, and many of the cities that we are familiar with are planted right up in here. So Philippi and Thessalonica are up here. He goes to Athens. He's already been to these places, to Corinth, okay? Corinth is down here. And so what we see in this movement is Paul's been in Ephesus for around three years. This is the longest time that Paul spends in any one place. He's probably not only in Ephesus. He's probably going nearby and preaching and teaching and planting churches, but he's also sending out missionaries. So Ephesus becomes kind of um, a sending center for uh, the region. We know, for example, that Colossae is inland from Ephesus, and uh, Paul didn't plant that church there, but one of his disciples went and planted that. So what is Paul doing? Before he goes back to Jerusalem, he's going to go back and make sure he goes through all these churches which he's planted. He's their father. He's their daddy. He wants to come back through, encourage them before he takes off, because Paul knows he might never be here again. He wants to go to Spain. You see that in the book of Romans. He wants to go to the ends of the earth and keep the gospel going. So Paul's going to make his way, you see the red, all the way down and through Greece and Achaia. And then he's going to eventually make his way back up. And we'll see that in a minute. So let's keep that, that map um, up there. This is what Paul is doing. By the way, some of you are bored out of your minds right now. Some of you are like, I like maps. Okay, so wherever you are on that spectrum, wherever you are on that spectrum, just another reminder, I'm going to say this till the day I die. This really happened. That's a real place. This is not a map of Narnia, okay? You're not going to find Gondor up here. This is a real place. You can go there. How many of you, anybody been to Greece? Okay, uh, all right, we've got a few. Anybody been to Turkey? I mean, they've been to the airport, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, these are, these are real places. When, when, you have, when you have Mormon missionaries that are talking to you, um, one of the things you ought to bring up is how awesome it is to read your Bible and to know that you can go to these places and see these archaeological digs and understand that we have resources from these places. The Book of Mormon claims to happen in, in a place in the Americas. There's zero archaeological evidence, people. <laughs> There's nothing there. What we, what we stand on is God's word that has internal and external evidence so we can be confident that this is God's word, that this really happened. And one of the ways we know that is because these are accurate directions. <laughs> okay? These are accurate directions on what's happening. So what does Paul do? He's going to travel, probably mostly by foot, sometimes by getting on a boat. But you've got to understand, um, this is a dangerous location, okay, in the Aegean Sea. And the boats stay close to land. They hug the shores, all right? So this is not just like some pleasure yacht cruising out there. Um, this is, these are passenger ships on a schedule. Get your ticket, okay, and get on the boat. So Paul is, in the verses that we read, Paul is taking weeks and months, arduous labor. He's been beaten many times in his life. His body is not in tip-top shape, I'm certain. And he is laboring to get to these places, when he comes to Greece, um, we would assume that he probably is ending up in Corinth. Um, that was his other base of operations. He spent a lot of time there. And they're a troublesome church, and he's written some letters, and there hasn't been, there's been some back and forth that hasn't been so great. He sent Titus there. All of these things are happening. When he gets there, in verse 3, it says he, there he spent three months. And we know that Paul wanted to spend the winter in Corinth because in the winter... You're not traveling. There's no boats out on the water, so it's time to kind of settle down. And so Paul very likely visits Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and possibly other churches on his way. Maybe a stop in Athens, we're not sure, but, but ending probably in Corinth. One very interesting tidbit is, could he have gone further? There's some gen general... Um, instructions given here, but there's also months that are kind of blank and open to us. And an intriguing thing I want you to see is go one book over to the book of Romans and go to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Here's something interesting to think about. Paul wrote Romans um, from Corinth while he was there, very likely during this winter. And we can see a little bit of what Paul is looking forward to. Look at Romans 
15, um, and look, start in verse 18, okay? Romans 15, 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, where? So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. In verse 23, he says he has no room to work in these regions anymore. Look at verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. He says in verse 26, Macedonia and Achaia and the contribution for the poor. Down in 28, he says, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Paul's plan, his ambition was to go to the ends of the earth. How was he going to do it? He was going to go further west than he'd ever gone. He was going to go to Rome and he wanted to be kind of resourced in Rome to head further out and go all the way to Spain, the ends of the earth. Illyricum that is mentioned there, he says, I've basically preached the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. Illyricum's over here. We have no direct word in the scriptures that Paul went there. So it's interesting to think, intriguing to think, maybe this was his his chance, his opportunity before winter settles in to get over into this region. Now this is the region of North Macedonia, Kosovo, Albania. Um, This is this place. He says he's been to Illyricum. Does it mean he went physically? It doesn't have to. It means he might have sent some of his missionaries there and they're bearing his gospel and going and they're his disciples. But it is intriguing to think that Paul might have done this in this time. Whatever it was the case, he wanted to leave from Corinth and sail east to get to Jerusalem. He wants to get to Jerusalem. If you'll look, he wants to get to Jerusalem in time in here in this passage to to Pentecost for the feast that he's trying to get to. Um, But what he says is that there was a plot. Luke tells us there was a plot made in verse 3. And so as he was about to set sail for Syria on his way to Israel, he decided to return through Macedonia. And some, some people think that what's happening is if there's a lot of pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and they were all going to get on a ship and go to Syria, that perhaps they knew Paul was also going to go, and he's got nowhere to go on the ship, and so it's time to end Paul. They hear about the plot. Now, I just said that very matter-of-factly. Can you imagine someone coming to your house today and say, hey, listen, that trip you were going to go on, we can't do it. Um, there's a group of people that want to kill you, and they're planning to do it. We've heard about it, and you can't do this. I, that's hard, but can you imagine how you would react this afternoon? Full, full stomach on a Sunday afternoon, time to watch some football, take a nap on the couch. Someone wants to kill you. Oh, that's an interesting turn of events. And so to think about... Um, Paul's thought immediately it seems to me, is, okay, well, I still got to get there. So how am I going to do it, right? It's not like, don't go, Paul. Like, stop, just hide. It's like, well, he's not going to be stupid and get on the boat, but he is going to find an alternate route to get there. Why? Because Paul had work to do. Think about how you would react to that. Maybe when your plans get interrupted, how do you respond? When your travel plans have to get canceled, when your vacation doesn't work out, when there's traffic on the freeway, um, some options. Here's how you might feel. I don't know. This may have been some of what I feel. Complaining, whining, woe is me. When your travel plans get upended, what do you choose to see? Paul chose to see an opportunity to go another way. He makes the best of his opportunity. He's not doom and gloom. He chooses to go back. And so what does he do? He follows the route he took, and he goes back through, and he encourages the churches again. Hey, I'm back. Didn't plan on this, but I'm back to encourage you some more. Alexander Graham Bell said this once, when one door closes, another opens. But we often look so long and regretfully at the closed door that we do not see the one that is open for us. Paul Paul didn't gaze at the closed door and... He looked, okay, there's got to be a door open somewhere else. What's the next plan? Let's move so the gospel can continue to go forward. Okay? So this is what happens. He decides to return back up through through Macedonia. Okay? Back up and around. Verse 4. We have this interesting um, list of Paul's posse. Okay? Um, These are the guys 
that are traveling with him. There are seven delegates from various churches that Paul has planted, um, not all really close to each other. So these, in some regards, are people from different, um, different groups, different people groups, different tribes, different nations even. And they're all coming together on Paul's team. There's a guy from Berea. Okay? There's two guys from Thessalonica. There's a guy from Derby. Timothy's with him, and Timothy is from Lystra. And then there's two Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, who are probably from Ephesus. Just real interestingly, um, Paul had been planting churches for about a decade, and he's got disciples. He's got followers. He's got assistants. He's got helpers. Paul is not super missionary, super apostle. Paul is a team player. Paul realizes that it's going to take teams for the gospel to continue, for the churches to thrive, and for more churches to be planted. We don't know anything about Sopater. Um, we know Aristarchus had been with Paul just as recently as the last chapter, and we'll meet him later in Caesarea when Paul is in prison. And later on in Paul's letters, he calls him my fellow prisoner. So Aristarchus was a lifer. Uh, we don't know who Secundus was. Gaius, we're not sure. Gaius is also one of the most common names in the Roman Empire, so there could have been several Gaiuses. You know, just like we look around the church and there's a bunch of Andrews and a bunch of Sarahs. And right, they have, it's a common name, okay? So we don't know which guy this is necessarily, but we hear Tychicus, who is a faithful associate of Paul. Later on in Paul's letters, he'll call him his dear brother. He mentions him in Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Timothy, and also in Titus. And Trophimus, we'll hold on to this name because he's going to cause quite a ruckus in a couple chapters. And it's likely that these guys are representatives of their churches, and it's likely they're all carrying physical money that the churches have raised to take to Jerusalem, which means they, things could get dangerous. They're holding a bunch of money. This is like the stagecoach going over the hills, right? And the people waiting to rob it. So they, they're a group together. They're taking the money. It also means that there's accountability. It also means that there's fellowship together. And it also shows, especially the Jewish churches, that Paul's work among the Gentiles has borne fruit. Here are, here's a guy from this church. Here's two guys from this church. Here's a guy from this church. They're eager to come and bring money to you because we know that you guys need help. And this is the, the point of what's... Uh, this is the point of Luke breaking down a whole verse and giving us all these names. What's going on here? He's given us these names on purpose. Okay? Team ministry, then, is vital. It is biblical. Everywhere that elders are mentioned in the New Testament, it's in the plural which means the church has had a plurality, multiple elders. We should almost always be ministering in groups of some kind. Right? We need teams. We have a team in the library. We have a worship team. We have a missions team. We have an outreach team. We want to function in, whether they're official or unofficial, we want to be functioning together, grabbing people, bringing them alongside so that we have um, the plurality. We have accountability. We have various gifts being used. All of us are very bad at some things. And all of us are very good at one or two things. And in the middle is a bunch of competency, hopefully, right? But we need that to fill in the gaps, even here at Village Bible Church. We're going to see this on display with Living Nativity, right? Some people, please don't help us set up. You're going to break things, right? Don't, just get away, right? Some of you, please don't act, right? You know that. You know that, right? There's things that you shouldn't touch in living nativity. There's a lot of things you can help with, right? And, and so we get the right people in the right places and things go really well. And that's awesome to see. And it's, it's humility, right? Knowing you're not good at things and that's okay. But knowing what you're good at and being affirmed by others is an important part as well. We're going to see that come together. This is the body metaphor in the New Testament, right? Um, you, need a, you need a really helpful working shoulder and elbow to get some things done with your hand, right? We were helping down at Rancho Santa Marta last week. And there's some things that older guys can't quite do anymore, okay, because of shoulders and those kinds of things. And then um, I was helping David, who, uh, David Kirby's had rotator cuff surgery, and he says, my left shoulder is just not the same. And he's doing, he's doing a nail gun like a pro, because he has bam, 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 bam. So he asked me to do it, and I'm like, oh, Lord, help me. Right? <laughs> I think I can put this nail in, right? But, but he pointed it out to where I could do it. If it was left up to me, that would have been a very bad job done, okay? But together... We were able to work together to get that done. So here are the men that are going with Paul. Some of them went ahead in verse 5 and went to Troas. But Paul goes all the way up to Philippi and he celebrates Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread there, crosses the, uh, the Aegean and comes to Troas. Can we get that next um, map up? This is a little closer map. 
Troas is close to the ancient city of Troy. Um, and this, even though it looks like a short trip, the winds probably would have been going in the wrong direction and it would have been maybe a difficult voyage. So what would have taken two days going the other way, took five days going this way. He gets to Troas and he spends a week there. We think that um, Paul has previously had time in Troas. We don't get that necessarily um, in Acts, but in some of his letters. When he gets there, scene two, Paul spends dedicated time with the church in Troas, raising one young man from the dead. He spends dedicated time with the church there, raising one young man from the dead. So this is the, the story with details. Um, and interestingly, in verse 7, they meet on the first day of the week. The first day of the week is Sunday, and they're gathered together to break bread. And there's a lot of debate over if breaking bread is a technical term for celebrating the Lord's Supper. There's a lot of evidence from the early church that they celebrated the Lord's Supper once a week. Um, so that could be what's going on here. It could just be that the churches also, by necessity, just ate together every time they met. Um, we have evidence in the book of Jude of love feasts. Um, some churches, some church traditions, will, when they celebrate the Lord's Supper, celebrate it at the end of a meal um, regularly. Um, some, some denominations even wash feet at, at that, at remembering um, the Last Supper. And so this is the first day of the week. It seems to be the regular gathering time, which means that the Gentile churches and some of the Jews who are at these churches have gone away from Shabbat, Sabbath, on Saturday and begun meeting on Sunday. It could be that if Luke is talking about Jewish time, it just could be a Saturday night meeting because Sabbath goes from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And if you meet on, after sundown on Saturday, it's the next day. Okay, so that would be Sunday starting. The, the Romans and the Greeks either did daybreak or midnight. That's like, like we do. Whatever the case, they're meeting in the evening. And this is likely because there's no such thing as the weekend in the Roman world. Um, there is no weekend, and so uh, especially the poorer people and even the middle class, they worked all day on Sunday and probably on Saturday, um, except for maybe some of the, the Jewish people. Um, so the only time they could meet was likely in the evening. So they meet in the evening, they're breaking bread, and Paul is talking with them, intending to depart on the next day. So it's his last day there, and he wants to celebrate the Lord's Day with them. And it says he prolonged his speech until midnight. I think if you have the new the NIV or the NLT, later on, it's going to say that Paul spoke on and on, which is way... <laughs> he just went on and on. I think Luke's kind of ribbing Paul a little bit here for how long he... he said, Man, this guy preaches forever. Okay, but we have in this story the concern that Paul has much to pass on and not much time. The church sticks around. Get this. They stick around for the teaching. They're there to be taught. They want to hear God's word. Um, they're up until midnight. I mean, so they probably are there around dinner time. This is a long church service, okay? Um, they want to hear from Paul. There's this weird comment. Look at verse 8. Just look at it with me. What in the world is verse 8 doing in the Bible? Is this for the decoration committee? Um, what is going on here? We don't know. Some people think, wow, there are a lot of lamps, there's some smoke, maybe there's scented olive oil. Maybe it made them drowsy, which is going to explain what happens next. Um, they, they need light because per, perhaps they're in a poor section of town. And because in a, the poor sections of town, they would have multi-level buildings. Um, whatever the case, the, the lamps are on. It's nighttime. It's hard to see. And verse 9, and a young man named Eutychus, which before we even go any further. Some of the scholars think this could be a guy in his 20s or 30s. Okay? So we're looking at Brian and Patrick kind of sitting comfortably in the window. It could be someone who's more like 8 to 14 years old, so some of our upper elementary and junior hires. Um, whatever the case, he's a young man. He's sitting at the window. He sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. You're in good hands, people. Paul put people to sleep, which also means, guess what? I'm in good hands, too. <laughs> this man's name is Eutychus. It means lucky. Okay, it means fortunate. He might be named after the goddess, or the god Fortuna. Um, he, might just, he might have gotten his name changed after this, and then they kind of went back and put his name as Eutychus. Whatever the case, his name is Lucky. And he sank into a deep sleep. <laughs> He's out. As Paul talked, on and on. And being overcome by sleep. I mean, deep, deep sleep. He's sitting by the window, overcome by sleep. He just couldn't fight it. 
right? And I see you. I see you guys. That's okay, right? It's all right. Sometimes it might be the most scintillating sermon you've ever heard, and it just you're just in a comfy chair, and it's going back, and he's going on and on. But imagine, with all the humor here, imagine a church service where someone dies. I mean, it goes from funny to serious really quick, and then back to normal, which is really weird. He fell down from the third story and was taken up dead, but Paul went down and bent over him, taking him in his arms, said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Wow. This is incredible. After Paul's been droning on, he runs down the stairs, he bends over the man, the young man, and what you should be thinking here is, this sounds a lot like Peter earlier in the book of Acts, raising Dorcas from the dead. This sounds a lot like those three times that Jesus raised someone from the dead. It sounds a lot like Elijah and Elisha raising people from the dead in the Old Testament. In fact, if you go back and look in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4, you'll see Elijah and Elisha raising uh, young boys from the dead. And it, it almost happens exactly like this. In fact, what does Paul do? Notice the detail. It doesn't say Paul went down and healed him. It says Paul went down, bent over him, and taking him in his arms, and the word is embrace or hug, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. Now, a lot of people have read this and said, well, maybe, um, you know, he fell and he was knocked unconscious. Listen, we, we might know a lot more scientifically than we did 2,000 years ago, but people still knew when people were dead. Okay? Like, they weren't like, oh, my goodness, how, is he dead? Like, so it is, <laughs> this scene, he's, he's dead. He fell out and he's dead. Okay? This is not just a case of, oh, he bumped his head. Because of the detail given. It's meant to get us to think about Elijah and Elisha. So Elijah and Elisha, when they raise these dead boys from the dead in the Old Testament, there's this, this awkward one where he gets on top of him, right? And he, and he puts his mouth to his mouth and his hands to his hands. And he gets on top of the boy and he prays for life to be given back to him. And his life is back. Notice the wording. For his life is in him. The, the word for life um, is the same word for soul. Okay. And his soul is in him. It hasn't left. <laughs> and so some people go, well, that means he wasn't dead. I think it means that his soul came back. Okay? And we could argue about that later maybe. But I think what you're seeing here is a resuscitation. Okay? A resuscitation. This boy was dead and now he's alive. Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And the best part is <laughs> when Paul had gone up and had broken bed and eaten, he conversed about a long while until daybreak. They go for six more hours. This is a marathon, marathon preaching with a death in the middle. This is an incredible sequence. The, Dr. Luke, by the way, Dr. Luke, does he know if someone's dead? Dr. Luke is privy to this? Yeah. Um, they get back up and they go eat. So had they waited to do the Lord's Supper? Did they do the Lord's Supper? And now they got enough, they've been going so long, there's another meal coming? Um, Whatever the case is, they talk for a long time. These people are hungry for God's word. May we be hungry for God's word, even if I don't go until midnight. May we be desirous of hearing God's word. And then verse 12, it's great. The conclusion, they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. <laughs> Luke likes to say it's not a little, okay? Meaning a lot. They were a lot comforted. They, they come away, um, not, not even amazed. It's not amazed, but they're comforted. That, that God saw to it through Paul to raise this boy from the dead. Truly, his name, Eutychus, he's a lucky guy. Now, after that amazing story, we get another travelogue, verses 13 through 16. And verses 13 through 16 are in a really important setup for next week when Pastor Ron preaches through the last part of Acts 20, which is a great passage. I'm not jealous. Um, it is an amazing passage of Paul bearing his heart to the elders of the church at Ephesus, but he's got to get there. Okay, remember, all of this is on the backside of somebody wants to kill Paul. This is why he's gone this route. Okay, so look, look at verses 13 through 16. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. So can we get that, that next map up, please? Um, oh, sorry, I did it, didn't I? Sorry, Jeremiah. <laughs> Uh, there we go. So he's at Troas on the Aegean Sea, uh, important port city. And for some reason, Paul sends his posse on a boat, the peninsula here, but Paul takes the overland route. Um, 
we don't know. Paul was training for a hike, um, but he takes about a 20-ish mile hike through the hills, through the mountains, to get down to Assos. The thing is, that, that peninsula was treacherous. So some of the commentators were saying, well, Paul wanted to stay safe. And send his other guys on the boat? I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't know what's going on, but I don't think that's what's going on. Maybe there's some churches on the way that Paul just wants to kind of give a high five as he goes by real quick. Um, But whatever the case, it's not an easy, it's only 20 miles, but it's not an easy sail around that peninsula. Um, This is part of the plan. So they pick up Paul on the other side in Assos. And then you get all of these instructions of their little day, day long um, ship rides. Okay. And they're going to end up after several days down at Miletus. You can see Ephesus is right here. And it says specifically that he bypasses Ephesus. He doesn't want to go back there. Um, Two reasons. Um, What's one reason he might not want to go back to Ephesus right now? Yeah, um, trying to kill him. Uh, He kind of made a big uproar last time he was there. Maybe there's a warrant out for him. Um, Stay away. Second, you know when you just want to go talk to someone really quick after church? (laughs) Um, He spent longer at this church than any other church. If he goes... He's not just popping in, right? This is not the fist bump and, you know, a little piece of bread and go. This is, oh, I love you guys. Oh, I love you, love you, Paul. Come on. No, stay one more day. No, stay one more day. So Paul skips Ephesus. He's trying to get to Jerusalem. He's already been delayed. He wants to get there for Pentecost to celebrate. And so he, he bypasses them on purpose. Look at verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Um, just to give you another idea, this is zooming out. And this is kind of giving you prep for next week. But this is what uh, Paul has done on this journey. Started in Antioch. Um, so a multi-year uh, journey. What we are, we're up here in Miletus. And he wants to get on a boat and head all the way to Tyre. And then come down by the land through Caesarea down to Jerusalem. So this is where he's headed. This is where he wants to go. But he's kind of been redirected um, up here. He goes to some interesting places. Chios is an island. It's the birthplace of the poet Homer. Um, they stop at Samos. That's the birthplace of Pythagoras, the Pythagorean theorem guy. Um, so this is a, an important stretch of Greek history as well. And as he gets to these places, I just want you to notice this is very normal. He's just telling you places he went. Yeah, well, we went to here, and then we went to here, and then we stopped in this place, and then we went to this place. Right? It's, just, it's just a travel log. It's, it's normal. It might be a little boring. So I want you to notice the drudgery that Luke decides to include. Luke, like, skips a bunch of months, and then he decides to include some of these things. And I think he wants us to see the day-to-day living required even of Paul. We see the miracles and the great preaching and the riots. And then there's days and days and weeks and weeks and months in between those things. What's Paul doing? He's doing the Lord's work. And so the Lord's work is not primarily in the big things. Yes, we want to do a great job at living nativity. That's our big thing here at Village, right? We have a, a huge crafter with a ton, of, a ton of work to do this week. But it's in the day-to-day. It's in the normal. It's in the behind-the-scenes where we get to show the Lord our faithfulness. And we get to work for him um, because it's all for his glory, whether we eat or we drink or we set out the communion or we get ready for um, uh, brunch or we get ready to go camping. It's in these things where we see the faithfulness required of the Christian. Miracles are few and far between. They get the highlights, but they don't happen every day. This is long suffering. This is faithfulness. What is it Paul that said about stewards? Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. We don't want to work for um, the spotlight. We want to be faithful. We don't want to work for numbers. We want to be faithful. We want to keep going so that we might persevere until the end. This is part of what Luke is showing us in this travel log. The, the, the normal things that are going on. They've got to get tickets. They've got to get on a boat. They've got to follow all these rules. They've got to walk over a mountain. 
they've got to keep going. They've got to keep going. They've got to keep going. So some of you are working in a ministry that used to be big and now it's small. Some of you are getting back into ministry after a time off and it's not what you thought it was going to be. Faithfulness means keep going. Keep going. And it means because we're a team, we can work together and not just on our own. We can encourage one another. So one of the things I want you to take away from this is notice the ministry of encouragement that Paul emphasizes. The ministry of encouragement. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this about working together, about needing each other. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's words to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. More than just a pat on the back, although pats on the back are helpful and and good, we need to speak God's word to each other. God's word is not limited to the pulpit or to the one who has the gift of teaching. You have a Bible. (laughs) You have words of encouragement. How many of you have been encouraged by a simple text or email with just scripture in it? Anybody gotten any of those recently? Those are so helpful. Please send those. Send those along. Just pass along scripture. It's a big book, right? It might might have been a while since you've been in fill in the blank. Let's encourage each other with God's word from our lips, from our keyboards. Let's encourage one another. That's what we see in the book of Hebrews. That's why we come together. That's one of the reasons we gather. It's one of the reasons we don't just stay at home and watch on the internet. It's one of the reasons we we need to be here, if possible. Because we need to encourage one another. The physical presence of another human being telling us the truths of God's word is so important. We need that. You need that. I need that. Next, let's look at how important it was for these people to get together, to gather. Their schedule wasn't as easy as ours. Some of you are very busy. I understand that. We, have, we, we live in a time when we've, we have more free time than any generation in the history of the world. We have more opportunities to celebrate that time. Unfortunately, most of it's done on this. But we have so much free time. We have so much. You think if you had to go to work four miles away, that's nothing. But what if you had to walk there every day and walk back and back-breaking work in between. And then, church is at night, and you worked all day. This is what these people experienced, and they loved to be together. They worked to come together. They learned to love to come together. Let's be honest, every Sunday you're not like, yippee, church! Right? Not every Sunday. Maybe, I hope some Sundays are like that. But some Sundays you're like, what day is it? <laughs> Who's preaching? <laughs> right? That, that's, they're thinking those things. Thank you, Lorna. I see that hand. <laughs> but, but faithfulness means we come together. We obey the Lord. We desire to see. And when we don't desire, we pray for desire to be here. We assemble together. The gathering of the saints. How many of our brothers and sisters today longed to meet together with other believers but couldn't? How many of them in North Africa don't know another Christian? What would they give to be in a room with 10 other Christians and sing a song? We were led very well by our worship team today, weren't we? And it was an abbreviated worship team because some of them were up in the mountains, right? But we have amplification, we have instruments, What a glorious thing it is to come together as believers. How many of you have been gone for sickness or some health thing and it's been a while and you come back on a Sunday and it's overwhelming to you emotionally? Yeah, you're back, right? Here's my my people. If you don't feel that way, that's okay. Ask God to give you those feelings. Maybe you need to work harder. Maybe you need to come and ask us, how can I get involved? How can I get to know more people? Be a part of a community group, a Sunday school class a new ministry opportunity. And then the last thing I want you to notice is that believing in God's providence leads to joyful flexibility. 
Believing in God's providence, God is over all things. Nothing surprises him. What man means for evil, God means for good. Suffering refines us. If God is sovereign, then a plot to kill us means that God has allowed it and he has something else for us. It might mean death. If you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, please get a copy from our library and read it. It's gruesome, it's horrible, but it is so encouraging. People being burned at the stake and singing hymns until they can't anymore because they get to follow Jesus into death. Paul goes, I can't go this way. Okay, I can go this way. What does that mean? That means you've got to change plans. It means you've got to cancel your tickets. It means you've got, you got to rearrange everything. You've got to send on ahead to make sure the churches know you're coming. But joyful flexibility should be our response to hardship and disruption. So we have to look for opportunities. We pray for opportunities. We act for opportunities. When God shuts something down, when God allows Satan to shut something down, we look for what God wants us to do next. We don't know what he wants us to do. Sometimes we do, and then we have to wait and wait and wait and wait. Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son. You've never had a son. I'm going to give you a son. Lord, it's been 20 years. Where's my son? Where's this boy? Here's your son. By the way, can you take him and go sacrifice him on a mountain? Yes, Lord. I'll obey. Faithfulness to the end. This is a relatively boring 16 verses. I hope maybe today I've given you some tools to make it a little less boring or to utilize the maps, utilize the notes, utilize the cross-references and see what God has for us even in the passages that don't leap out at us or aren't as familiar to us. God has great nuggets in his word if we're willing to dig for them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for these people being patient with my going on and on. Um, Lord, we love your word and we pray today that you would um, help us during the week to not only feast on the word that we get on Sundays, but also to learn how to feed ourselves um, in your word. So I pray for um, renewed Bible reading for some who have fallen off, but I pray that we would find joy and um, find encouragement and find um, conviction in your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would have your word in our hearts and on our lips so that we might encourage our fellow brothers and sisters. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here. Now go with us as we leave for the conversations that are going to happen, for the hanging out, for the lunches. We pray you bless our time together. Thank you for bringing us together. In Jesus' name, amen.